morning. All right, our scripture this morning is Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. So if you'd like to use the Pew Bible, it'll be on page 928. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods." And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Thank you, Lauren. Man, checking the time. We'll see how, how far we get here. There's a lot to see in the amphitheater. I wrote in my notes a song... Lyrics that probably many of you know. Willie Nelson mentioned him before. Uh, What does Willie Nelson and the Apostle Paul have in common? But maybe these couple lines. On the road again, going places that I've never been. And probably this one, uh, most specifically for his time in Ephesus. Seeing things that I may never see again. Maybe a theme song for Paul, if only 
If only it were written in his time. We've already seen in Ephesus God's manifest power and presence to heal, even through these handkerchiefs and aprons, which was probably meant uh, Paul's work clothes or even sweatband were taken, and people were being miraculously healed of infirmities and disease. We see these Jewish itinerant exorcists streaking for cover, and then a million-dollar bonfire. And so if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, you may do well to go back and listen. Some interesting events to say the least. Well, here we are in the amphitheater and there's this crazed mob chanting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now work hard to picture this. There's an outdoor entertainment venue built for tens of thousands of people, one of the finest in the land. And it would accommodate events of various kinds. Now imagine a mob-like crowd that gathers and shouts for more than two hours, so loud that it's difficult to even be heard amongst the commotion. Some aren't really even sure what's going on down there, uh, but they are part of something and it seems exciting, and so they're following the leading of the crowd. If only we could imagine something like this in our current culture. If you need help, you can turn on your television this afternoon. I love that Luke tells us most of them didn't even know why they had come together. It's comical, perhaps, though it should be convicting. Maybe that's the first entry point for us into this passage. Why are we even here today? We've come together for various reasons, I would wager, and some of you uh, might say, I didn't even think about it, and now that you are thinking about it, you're not so sure. (laughs) What became evident to those who were gathering in the amphitheater, though many didn't even know what was happening, but they wanted to be a part of it, uh, it became clear that they were to proclaim, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they were swept up in that that, uh, proclamation for over two hours. Artemis was the goddess of fertility and the hunt the daughter of Zeus, the twin sister of Apollo. She was identified with the Roman goddess Diana. They believed, as we hear through the town clerk, he proclaims uh, that this goddess has essentially seen Ephesus and chosen to descend upon this city to dwell there and to bless its people. Apparently, uh, some stone was found that was said to have fallen from heaven, whether it was a meteorite or not, unsure, but perhaps had some form of likeness to this goddess. And so many believed that this goddess had seen them, had descended upon them to dwell in their city and to bless them. So Paul sees this as an opportunity to preach about the true God, the presence of God to dwell with man in contrast to the idolatry of Artemis, which ultimately has stirred a whole city into a riot-like state. It's interesting, as the town clerk says, uh, men of Ephesus, verse 35, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? These things cannot be denied. So we see this 
pretty sharp contrast that Luke is now illustrating for us, and I hope we don't miss it today. It was evident for Luke. It's way more evident for us today. Which God is greatest? Which temple remains? I put a picture up of the temple of Artemis that now stands in Ephesus. In that day, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. 127 of these columns lined this, the facade of this great structure, and now a lone one remains as if to remind of what was once the greatness of Artemis of the Ephesians. Which God remains and which temples remain? Today, tens of thousands of gatherings are not of people, of crowds, not gathering to chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but great is Jesus of Nazareth. Whether in theaters or fields or cathedrals. And that's why we've gathered today. That's why we gather every Sunday to do what the Ephesian church was already doing 2,000 years ago, extolling the name of the Lord Jesus, proclaiming the word of the Lord, and confessing sin that God was convicting of hearts of our own idol worship. Paul knew that the temple would not endure. The true temple that would endure was God's people. That imagery is throughout the New Testament, that God would now dwell within His people, not just His collected people, but even the hearts of individuals. God chose to make His dwelling place. And Paul would write back to this Ephesian church. Now hear the contrast of these words that are likely familiar to many. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and following. You are the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Which temple remains? A striking contrast. The world will always have its temples and will always have its gods. And with great assurance, they will proclaim essentially the same thing that the city clerk proclaimed that day. Oh, these Christians, they, they pose no threat. Let them go on believing what they believe. That a Jewish, homeless, vagabond carpenter is their God. We know the truth. We know what will prevail. Our world proclaims the same. But in the years and the decades and the centuries to come, what remains? What temples will stand? What gods will yet possess power? Just as the name of Artemis fades from history, so will the names of any leader or god or goddess in culture in politics, in business, in sport, in entertainment, from Obama to Oprah to Bezos to Beckham to Bieber, just to name a few. Not that many of these sermons will endure the test of time, but if someone happens to be listening to this in years to come, I bet the response will be who? So will the temples 
that we have today lie in ruins if given enough time, just as the temple of Artemis in Ephesus lies but a ruin, so will our king domes, our theaters, our malls and capitol halls and skyscrapers. But we'll continue creating more, creating new temples and gods that ultimately have no power, that are destined to crumble. It's what man has always done. Let's trace this temple picture throughout Scripture. If a temple was to be the dwelling place of God, then what was the first temple? The Garden of Eden, where God dwelt with His people in perfect intimacy. Not all temples have walls. And therefore, we need to hold that picture when we try to understand that God dwells with His people. When Jesus came, He was named Emmanuel. God dwells with man. That dwelling of God's temple, His presence, was very different than a cathedral or a temple built with stone. And so it's very important to trace that picture of God's dwelling through His temple, His chosen temple, When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that hung in the most famous temple for the Jews that separated God's presence from the outer courts, that curtain, that veil was torn in two as a symbol of this temple is now broken. This temple is now open. God's dwelling place with man has been reestablished as it was in the garden because of what Jesus has done to redeem We trace that theme. I don't have time to articulate that this morning. What do I need to skip? (laughs) Ultimately, if we look at what happened in the first temple in the garden, where Adam and Eve had even then had a propensity or an openness to worship other gods, They believed a lie that God wasn't good enough, wasn't enough, or was even withholding from them what they needed for true life and satisfaction. These were the lies that Satan spoke to them in the beginning. They believed him instead of believing God, and they took the fruit, seeing that it was good, at least from their eyes and their perspective, and they broke fellowship. They broke relationship they broke covenant with God and man has been doing so ever since Jeremiah 2 verse 13 it may be the I think the the most concise powerful description of the heart of idolatry that we can find in scripture Jeremiah speaking on behalf of the Lord the Lord says for my people have committed two evils First, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. First evil, turn away, reject God as the source of all life. Second, the second evil is they have replaced me or are striving to replace me. They have dug out cisterns for themselves. Cisterns which can hold no water. God, the fountain of living water, the source of all life. Man has rejected, distrusted, dismissed No, God, I don't believe you're the source of all life. Instead, have replaced God with the work of their own hands as if that could satisfy. 
And the Lord says through Jeremiah, they are broken, they are empty, they will never satisfy. So that here we have in Acts 19, Demetrius claiming incredulously, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, get this, saying that the gods that we have created with our hands are actually no gods at all. There's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Can you believe it? The gods that we've created with our hands are actually not gods. Centuries earlier, God answered Demetrius. Demetrius wouldn't have known this. Not just through Jeremiah, that would be a good, concise answer. But I'm tempted to read this whole passage from Isaiah 44. God's answer to Demetrius. Isaiah 44, verse 9. You may want to get there. I may skip a couple verses. See if I can capture the heart of this. God says through Isaiah, Isaiah 44, 9, All who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is Profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers. He works it with his strong arm. And then he becomes hungry, and his strength fails, and he drinks no water, and he is faint. And then there's the carpenter who stretches a line and he marks it out with a pencil and he shapes it with planes and he marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down to it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. There is intentional irony in Scripture. But if we just laugh at that idea, that concept, we prove that we do not understand the heart of idolatry, nor do we see it. That's the striking point that God is making through this image If we would, in arrogance or in ignorance, laugh and say they worship created things, things that they made by their own hands, their own intellect, their own skill, and they believe that has ultimate worth and value and they give themselves to it. Oh, the work of our hands, our mind, our skill, the things we have produced and acquired that we come to find our identity and worth in. Those are idols. It may not be from a timber that we cut down and fashioned into the shape of an image. 
And yet it's the same in heart. Remember the old English for the word worship is worthship. The thing that we ascribe or person or position that we give greatest worth to and then in turn find our worth in is ultimately an idol. If in addition to God or above God and rejection to God, we ascribe worth, we worship a false God, a little God, an idol, though it may not be a shrine or a statuette carved and shining in silver. The temples, the trinkets, and the titles are always changing throughout history and throughout culture. But the little gods behind them all are constant. Ultimately, the Ephesians' true god or goddess was not Artemis. The heart idolatry behind that worship were ultimately the gods they were giving power to. The gods of money, entertainment, sex, control, nationalism we see, community, politics, just to name a few. And they're no different for us today. Those little gods that express themselves and we worship in different ways. The idols of the heart that are far more pervasive and even more dangerous than little shrines and statues or books and scrolls. Paul saw them both. He saw them all. He saw what was rampant in a city. Remember when he was in Athens and he walked the streets in Athens. This is Acts 17 verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Eugene Peterson in his translation or um, paraphrase of Scripture, translation and paraphrase the message, said it was a, called it a junkyard of idols. So it's been two whole chapters since we've really addressed idolatry. And Paul would probably say it's been too long. David Paulison wrote this. He said, Idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in all of Scripture. The relevance of massive chunks of Scripture hangs on our understanding of idols in our current context and culture. Brad Bigney gives a helpful definition in his book, Gospel Treason. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. That's a very important distinction. He doesn't say, nor does the Bible, not to have affections and passions and loves But anything that captures our heart, mind, attention, affection more than God becomes an idol. Or that we must have in addition to God. God is not enough. Back to the garden. God is not enough, not good enough. I need something else also. He's withholding. I must take. It becomes idolatry. Which means that anything, even a good thing, can become an idol if we make it an ultimate thing. Tim Keller said, is there something or someone that you can't live without? That's an idol. There's nothing wrong with money. By the way, one of the, probably the most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. Tell me, when this, tell me when I say the actual text of the Scripture. Money is evil. Money is the root of all evil. The love of money 
is the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There we go. Man, we can twist and manipulate or just forget what Scripture actually says. And sometimes the words mean very significant things. Most of the time, right? Which means if we actually love money, we're probably, I mean, is anyone really like Scrooge McDuck? Are we, are we swimming in our money? Have we built a bin and we are just in love with our currency? Behind that God is likely that hidden, deeper God for control, a sense of freedom, security, uh, pleasures or things that money actually acquires. Money then becomes the tool uh, to serve and worship a deeper idol. How do we, how do we reveal uh, the deeper idols in our, in our life? It's the subtle ones that we're probably most unaware of that are most dangerous. And we don't, most of us don't have a shrine set up in our home that we bow to and worship, believing that, that thing or that statue will bring us worth or value. Though we do have other shrines set up in our home that seem to be gleaming that we give ourselves to for hours a day, entering into some kind of trance-like state, hoping to find something and receive something from. Do I need to spell it more clearly? What consumes our time, our thoughts, and our emotion? What are we willing to sacrifice other people and things for, to rearrange our schedules for, to give our money to? What things are we willing to sin for in order to attain or in order to keep? This starts to drill down on where these idols of our heart may be. When Keller asked that question, is there something you can't, or someone you can't live without? If I press that, put another way, if you were to lose something or someone, your life would be empty, could never be fulfilled or joyful. That's an idol. It could even be the dream of something not yet possessed, that when that dream is lost or taken, it becomes revealed as the idol that it is in our life, what we are ascribing worth and finding our worth in, working to achieve, or I should say worshiping to achieve. If God never gave you something that your heart desires, or if He took something from you or allowed you to lose it, you would reject Him, doubt Him, distrust Him at minimum, perhaps be furious with Him, it's difficult sometimes to see these idols of our heart without having lost them or seen them threatened. When our idols are threatened, we respond often with anger, defense, protection. We see it with Demetrius and those he, could, he gathered. To, the, their idols were being threatened. Their loss of income, their loss of power, their loss of position, control were all being threatened by what Paul was proclaiming. No one was openly opposing, at least we don't see it here in the passage, marching against the storefront of Demetrius. The city just stopped buying his idols. And not even the majority of the city. Just those who were coming to believe 
in the one true God. They, they stopped giving money to that system. And those idols were being threatened. A culture was being changed. An economy was being transformed. Not by outright rejection and opposition, but by worship of God and God alone. When our idols are threatened, no little disturbance ensues. So do you want to see your idols or not? And maybe not. Because no little disturbance will happen within our hearts. We might want to tune out or check out or stay ignorant of these things. The contrast here is the city clerk who in his own arrogance doesn't see his own idols as even being threatened. Oh, these, they're, they're not blaspheming or sacrilegious. They pose no threat. Why? Because his personal idols of his position, of his authority, of his control and his influence were not being threatened from his perspective by Paul and by these now believers in Jesus. And so he says, we're actually potentially in danger of being held in uh, opposition to the authority structures that come down from Rome by this riot. We need to stop this and go away peacefully because his idols are not being disturbed. Interestingly, he may be further from God, though he's peaceful and tolerant, than Demetrius and his fellows were because his idols were being threatened and about to lose all value and importance. And if they would be lost and broken, he would fill them some other place. Perhaps he would fill them with the one true God. Let me do a little exercise with you if you would like. Otherwise, again, do your best to tune out. If we trace the fruit in our life to its root, we start to uncover the idols. A lot of times we only deal with the fruit that we see in our life. And the good fruit, we go, yay. And the bad fruit, we go, I got to take that fruit off and replace it. And we might try to tape up uh, uh, an orange or an apple onto our tree, right? We just do this Band-Aid fix. If the fruit is of the Spirit, if the root of our faith is in God, then the Spirit produces fruit in our life. And you know that through Paul. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If those are what are evident in your life, not, they're not things that you're working for, they are growing and they just become evident in your life. Your pursuit is on trusting and following Jesus and that fruit result. If that's what's evident, then you see the root. If on the other hand, and by the way, these can often grow together in the lives even of followers of Jesus. But if the fruit that is evident in your life is more like anxiety, worry, fear, anger, striving for control, impatience, uh, compulsion, addiction, if, that's the, if those are the fruits that are evident, the root is idolatry. Because idolatry, created things, cannot fulfill, do not satisfy, produce false, ugly, evil fruit. And so we see fruits in our life. That's usually where I see, I see one or the other. And when we don't like the fruit, we try to pick it off and replace it. But if we don't trace down to the root, we're only doing Band-Aid temporary and that fruit grows fast. Just when we thought we dealt with it, something else happens in our life and new fruit, negative fruit just pops out. So let's trace one. I just picked one. You could trace any of those fruits 
How about anxiety? Just thinking either some of us maybe have wrestled with anxiety or struggled with it at some point. So you say, I I worry all the time. I'm not sleeping well. I don't have peace. It's like sometimes there's an elephant sitting on my chest. I guess, you know, I've struggled so long. I I guess I'm just an anxious person. It seems to run in my family, by the way. Let me tell you about my mom, my dad, my grandma. Just in case you ever are talking with someone who might say something like this, this could be a helpful exercise. You're not an anxious person. You're an idol worshiper. The root of what you are worshiping and trying to find your worth in is not working. It's producing anxiety. It is leaving empty and it is growing anxiety in your life. And you say, but I, but I believe in God. You are not believing in God. You do not know His promises or you have forgotten them. By the way, the work of the enemy robs the Word. Snatches it away. You do not trust in God's promises. And so you are in fact believing lies, which is the very work the enemy has always done. God cannot be trusted. He is not good. What are you believing? That's the first question to start tracing from the fruit. I see the fruit, now what? What am I believing about myself and about God? I believe I am an anxious person. I believe that I need to be in control or I can never have peace. I believe God ultimately has lost control or has withdrawn or does not care. Those are usually, by the way, works for almost all of the fruit we see. Conclusion, God is impotent. He's not powerful. He does not care. He's not loving. Or He is absent. He has left me. Either because of something that I've done, I'm not worthy, he is withdrawn, or he's just withdrawn from this world and let it go. This is what I am believing. That's why that fruit is showing up of anxiety. But who is God? Who does he declare himself to be? What does his word say about his character and who he is? In contrast, God is in control. God is sovereign. God is good. God is love. God desires all people to come to know Him and to live eternally with Him. God is present. God will work all things for good. This is what God's Word says. What has God done to prove it? Now I hope you can see things in your own life as you recall and go, I know what He's done for me and in my life and in my story. I see it. But we need to go even further than that because it's not about our circumstances that we place our faith. It's about who God is and what He has ultimately done to prove His love, His presence, His care. He sent Jesus to redeem, to heal, to rescue, to draw all men to Himself. Ultimately for those who believe to fill with the Holy Spirit, to empower, He gives purpose. He gives life. He fills darkness with light. So what must you do? Oh, skip one. Sorry. What has God done to prove it? So then, who are you? We have to to work back to tracing the root up to the right spiritual fruit. You are loved more than you could ever know. You are forgiven. 
You are not alone. You are known by God, seen by God. You are created in His image. You are given purpose and role and empowered to fulfill that through His spiritual gifting and through His very presence working through you. So then, what must you do? What are you believing? Who actually is God? What has He done to prove it? Who are you? And then what must you do? Confess and divulge idols, just as the Ephesian church did. Confess your doubt, your distrust, your forgetfulness, your anxiety, your need for control. You cast down your idols. You declare it. See them broken and burned. You stand firm on the promises of God. You fix your eyes on Jesus, not on your problems. And you faithfully dwell on His Word so that it is natural. It is what comes out when you are starting to believe lies. You can easily contrast that with the truth and promises of God. What normally happens when I ask those kinds of questions, so what are you believing? Okay, that's, that's fairly easy. To, so then, what does God say? Who is God? What is His Word that declares who He is in contrast to what you are believing? Usually there's struggle at that point. Because you're not dwelling upon the Word. It's not readily upon your lips. We are called to meditate on His promises day and night because the enemy would rob us of those truths of who God truly is, what He has done, therefore who we are, who our identity is and is secure. Our worth and identity is not found in these things. We reject them. We cast down our idols through confession and through repentance. And we once again are renewed and restored and filled instead of anxiety with hope, with peace, with love, with patience. By the way, this is a daily, ongoing process. We get better at it as we exercise it, but it doesn't end. You don't do it once. It's an ongoing trusting believing in who God is, especially when new circumstances come and show that Old fruit still grows, and we go, ah, oh, I thought I dealt with that. We go back through the process to the root of what ultimately we were trusting in, valuing, and worshiping. I hope that was helpful, and that's just such a quick, brief snapshot. If you'd like to walk through that, I would be happy to walk through that in an extended time with you because it's a personal and that we may not start with anxiety as the fruit. It may be something else. I would love to walk through that with you. What else can I skip here? To be continued, to see. Let's see. There's a lot of good stuff there. But let's, let's move toward close and toward response because I think we're naturally led to that. And I think we'll probably come up against idolatry uh, at least another time. If we're to ever have the kind of impact on our city, Lord willing, that's a great prayer. We're praying with these hundred other churches in our region. Lord, we want to we see a city transformed, a culture changed, an economy transformed for your glory and for the good of people. Good prayers. Remember, this is description, not prescription. We're not guaranteed that what happened in Ephesus would happen again in Redmond or in Seattle. But I'll tell you what, it will never happen if God's people aren't convicted in heart, 
don't see the rampant idolatry that is both in our midst and in our own hearts and reject it and cast it down and see it removed and built up on the promises of God, that the word of God would increase and prevail mightily, that the name of Jesus would be extolled. I mean, those things must happen if we're ever to have the hope of any impact and transformation in a city. But Lord, transform my heart first. It begins here. It begins here. That he would have our greatest affection that there would be no other God above him in our heart, our soul, our spirit, our mind, that we would worship him and him alone. Let's be reminded, and we'll close here. Team, you can make your way up for us. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, we would worship and bow before the one true living God, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples Parentheses, or in, in trinkets made by man. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, but he gives himself to all mankind and he gives life and breath and everything. He's even determined our days and the boundaries of our dwelling places. So let us, here we are, church, respond like this let us seek him and find him. He is near, for in him we live and move and have our being. We respond to Him like that this morning. The table is set. There's elements there in the back. As we're reminded of what Jesus has done, we draw near to Him. Let us seek Him. So as you come to receive these elements, a reminder of Christ's body being broken, that's the bread. Of Christ's blood being shed upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that's what the cup reminds us of. So if you have a desire to follow and trust Jesus, this table is open for you. Be welcome to it, even while you are in process of coming to see your own idols, your own distrust and doubt in God and God's promises. Draw near to Him. May He fill us where we empty ourselves. Because if He doesn't fill us, we'll fill it with just other things, new pursuits. The heart of man is an idol-making factory, John Calvin said. May it be filled with God and God alone. We have no other God but Him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You. Father God, we thank You for what You have done and are doing. We pray, I pray Psalm 1, that we would be like the man who delights in the Word of the Lord and meditates on Your law day and night. That we would be like a tree planted by streams of water that would yield its fruit in its season, that our leaf would not wither, and in all that we do, we would prosper. Lord, grow us like that and bear your fruit in our life as we do the work to see our idols and cast them down. Even now, Lord, we confess, we ask for your forgiveness and grace and mercy anew for your glory and our joy. Amen.